If you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Genesis chapter 24 this morning. Genesis chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, 67 verses. It's longer than when I preached Genesis 20 and 21 combined. And some of you, some might say that we should not read the whole thing here on a Sunday morning, that we should skim over it or summarize it. Uh, But church family, the reading of God's word in these moments, this is the most important part of what we do when we gather together. This is the living word of God. And so let's read the entirety of it together. And please give your careful attention to every every verse as we read it together now. Genesis 24, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. We're going to talk about that later. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. 
So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given me, he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son." Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. 
Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and of garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah and her sister, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bila Haroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to her servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that, had done, that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Church, certain seasons of life leave us desperately in need of direction and guidance, don't they? Particularly when one season is ending and another season is beginning, we can often be unsure about what the future is going to look like and how to even move forward. Transitional points in life can be very difficult. Friends, have you ever found that big changes in life leave you feeling confused and unsure about what comes next? New seasons of life can leave us asking lots of questions. What college am I supposed to go to? What job am I supposed to accept? Where am I supposed to live? Who am I to marry? What house are we to buy? When are we to have kids? When are we to retire? What do we do with our retirement when we do? We all have these transitional periods of life where we would love for God to just speak and to tell us what to do next. God, send me a message. Write it in the sky. Tell me who to marry. Tell me what job to take. God, just, just talk to me, please. But God does not always speak to us directly about these things, does he? Sometimes he is silent about the particulars of life. 
But church, does that mean that he is truly silent about these things? Does that mean that he is absent from us? Well, church, our text today speaks to this. Our text today is able to encourage and and strengthen and comfort us in the midst of these big transitions and these big questions of life because this text reminds us of how God, who is sovereignly and lovingly leading his people, how he will not fail us. Folks, here's the main idea for our message today. God's sovereignty gives comfort and hope when our futures are uncertain. God's sovereignty gives comfort and hope when our futures are uncertain. And we have three points to consider together this morning. Number one, needing God's sovereignty. Number two, seeing God's sovereignty. And number three, trusting God's sovereignty. Those are our three points. Needing, seeing, trusting God's sovereignty. Let's go ahead and begin with the first. Point number one, needing God's sovereignty. Folks, by all accounts, Genesis 24 is a brilliantly and beautifully written chapter in Genesis. It is a literary masterpiece. Scholars and commentators talk endlessly about the flow of this chapter. They talk about the the intentional repetition found within this chapter and the lengthy speeches and, and dialogues that are in this chapter. This chapter is very distinct from other chapters in the book of Genesis in both its length and in its style. Folks, think about this. Why would Moses take all this time longer than any other chapter in Genesis, to talk about this event. It doesn't seem like that, that's significant. Why not make it a little bit more condensed? Why, why not summarize it a little bit more? Well, friends, all of this detail, all of this repetition, and the length of this chapter is intentional. And in order to understand why this chapter is written in this way, we have to understand the intended effect that this story is supposed to have. We're going to see this more in in chapter or in point number two in a few moments. But without a doubt, the intended effect of this story is to show us the sovereign control of God over all things in all the world. God is behind the scene at every point of the story. He is sovereignly working his will and purposes, moving them forward in the lives of his people. But why take so long to show us how God is sovereignly at work in this story? Well, in order to understand the why, we must understand the context that this is written in. Folks, consider the context with me. The chapter before this, chapter 23, Sarah, Abram's wife, dies. The chapter after this, Genesis 25, Abraham will die. Look look at verse 1 in our text. It says that Abraham was old, well advanced in years. He's about to die. The, The story of Abraham and Sarah is almost at a conclusion. And so think about what an uncertain and even fearful season this must have been for Abraham. Abraham has given his entire life to following God. He has walked through decades of trusting God for his life and for the life of his family. But now he knows that his life is drawing to a close, and yet he still hasn't seen the full fulfillment of God's promises. Yes, he has received the promised child, Isaac, 
But, but Isaac is not even married yet, and Isaac certainly doesn't have any children yet, no offspring. And so how unsure this season of change must have been for Abraham. He must be asking the question, what, what would happen, what will happen after I die? What will the future be for my son? Also, think about Isaac. Isaac, who is probably about 40 years old at this point. Isaac's relationship with God so far has been primarily through his dad, Abraham. And so think about how fearful the future would have been for Isaac. What if God did not speak to him in the same way that he had spoken to Abraham? Would God even continue to speak or would he choose to be silent? What would happen in the next season? And folks, this text not just, doesn't just speak to Abraham and Isaac. This text speaks to all of God's people. Think about the original audience that this chapter was written for. This chapter was written for the nation of, of Israel, and, and the purpose of it was to encourage Israel during a season of transition in their life, right? Israel had just left Egypt. They were now sojourners in the wilderness. And, and guess what? Moses, who also had a special relationship with God, just like Abraham had, Moses was about to die. Israel was, was certainly asking the question, what's the future going to be for us? Would God continue to speak to us when Moses is gone? Would he continue to guide us? Or is he going to leave us abandoned in the wilderness? What happens next? And church, here's the connection to us this morning, right? This, this is the need for God's sovereignty in our lives. Uncertainty and fear is not just true of Abraham and, and Isaac and for Israel. No, uncertainty and fear are true for all of us. Maybe, maybe you are transitioning in some area of life right now, from, from one group of friends to another group of friends, from one, one church to another church, from one job to another job, from one season of family life to another season of family life, and you just want to know, is God going to be as present there as he has been here? Maybe you're a middle-aged dad, and, you're, and getting older has just been hard for you. Maybe you remember when your kids were easier to be around and when your, your marriage seemed like a lot more fun and when friendship in the church just seemed more, more easy. But now all of that just seems different. It seems harder. It seems more, more complicated. Maybe you're older than that. Maybe you are about to retire, but instead of being excited about retirement like so many others, you're terrified by retirement because you don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know what God is going to do and how he's going to be present. Folks, this is all of us. We all have these moments of saying, what is going to come next? Is God going to be faithful? How do we know where to go? What are we supposed to do? Genesis 24 highlights this, this fearful reality of our lives in a very pointed way. It raises the question, where do we turn when life is uncertain? That's the question it raises. But Genesis 24 doesn't leave it unanswered. No, it answers it in an unmistakably clear way. That brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two Seeing God's sovereignty. Seeing God's sovereignty. Abraham and Isaac are at a point of transition. 
They needed direction for the future. Folks, you and I need direction for the future. We need a guide to lead us forward. Have you ever been horribly lost, driving along without a, a clues to where you are and where to go? That, that is a horrible experience. When that, when that happens to us, we feel, feel fear and anxiety rising up within us. But, but if you have a map, or if you have Siri by your side, if you have confidence that, that you're going to be taken where you need to go if you follow this direction, then even if you don't fully understand exactly where you are, you can still have peace. Friends, Genesis 24 provides us with that guide. It provides us with comfort for our hearts and souls when we are unsure where to go. And the comfort of this text comes to us as we see God's sovereign control of everything that is happening in this story. Look at what happens. Verse 1 says that Abraham was old. Well advanced in years. He's, he's nearing death. And so he wants to find a wife for his son Isaac. But, but where? Where will Abraham find a wife for Isaac? What, what will he do? Where will he find direction? Well, look at verse 2. It says, And Abraham said to his servant, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth. Abraham wants his servant to swear that he will be faithful to this task. But by whom does he have his servant swear? By the Lord of heaven and earth. Folks, when you see that word Lord, it is the name Yahweh. It speaks of God's identity and his self-sufficiency. That, that word Lord is used 17 times in this chapter. That, that's a lot. 17 times we see it written here. And not only do we see the word Lord used 17 times, we see what kind of authority and power this Lord has, right? What does Abraham say? He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. This king, this God is not just Lord over a small region or a small province. No, he is God. He is Lord over heaven and over the entire earth. Friends, the one that we call king, the one that we worship is king of heaven and earth. And that one has ultimate authority. He speaks the entire universe into existence. The entire world, Hebrews 1 says, is like a footstool under this king's feet. And so do you see what's happening here? Abraham is at a very fearful and uncertain point in his life. But where does he look? What does he set his eyes on? What does he set the eyes of his servant on? God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Abraham is very confident that the Lord is going to guide the life of his family forward. He says to his servant, God will send his angel before you. He's confident in who the Lord is. And then, folks, the rest of this chapter is a magnificent display of how the Lord does sovereignly go before him. Right, The servant immediately takes uh, all these camels and all these possessions and he goes on, it says it in about a verse and a half, but it would have been a more than a 500 mile journey. But God guides him through the wilderness the whole way. When, when he arrives at his desti destination in Mesopotamia, he, he prays to God and he says, let the first woman that comes out and offers water to my camels be the woman that you have for, for my master's son Isaac. 
If you notice, verse 45 says that he said those things in his own heart, which means that no one else heard him in that moment. It's not like Rebecca heard that over his shoulder and then decided to act in the way that he had just prayed. No, it was a silent prayer, and yet God sovereignly leads Rebecca to act in that way. Folks, did you also notice how Moses writes about these details of what happens three different times? It repeats itself. He writes about his initial prayer in verses 12 to 14, and then he repeats in detail what happens when Rebecca comes in verses 17 to 28, and then he repeats all of the details again. He doesn't summarize it when he's talking to Laban in verses 42 to 47. Moses could have just summarized those things very briefly. Folks, the fact that the details of what he prayed and then of what happened are repeated three times, all of that is to highlight how God is sovereignly active in this text. He's active through the whole story. (laughs) Friends, it's good that he's active in the whole story, right? Because I I don't know if the servant was married himself or not. I don't know if he's got a wife back home, but, but he does not seem to have the best pickup lines on Isaac's behalf, right? Sitting around a well, just waiting for a girl to come and serve you and to serve your camels, that doesn't seem like the best strategy. Guys, I would not recommend going to the bar with your buddies and just saying, Lord, the first girl to come and buy us all drinks, that's the one. That's not how this works. Folks, the point of this text is not to direct you to pray just like the servant does here. God is not calling you to put out fleeces and to put out tests like this before him. We, we don't really see any example of that in the New Testament at all. That's not how we're normally supposed to relate to God. That's not the point of the story. Folks, Genesis 24 preaches to us rather the sovereignty of God in all things. Genesis 24 reminds us that there's nothing that happens in life apart from God's knowledge and apart from his ability to work it all together for our good. You you may not understand exactly what he's doing, but you can trust his ways because there's nothing that is outside of his control. He guides his people in even the smallest areas of life. He guides this servant on a 500-mile journey. He has Rebecca there at the right time. He leads her to say exactly what the servant had prayed about. Listen, the God who is Lord of heaven and earth, this is the God who cares about the smallest details of our lives. This is the God who cares about the smallest detail of your life. He is in control of everything. There is no need to fear the future. Listen to this quote from one commentator. He says this, He says, this masterful romantic tale is a theological reflection on divine providence. The attention to detail, he says, suggests God's providence in the particulars. Another commentator says that the primary goal of this text is to encourage us all as God's people to entrust our existence to the Lord's providential care. Church, the point of this text This morning, the reason you're sitting in your chair hearing this spoken today is so that you can trust God with your life and for your future. We can trust him. Church, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to see God of heaven and earth and his gracious, sovereign control. Lift your eyes to see the gospel and his great love for you. And know this morning that as hard as life might be right now, as uncertain as the future may be. Friends, you can lift your eyes and see that the king is on his throne. 
Nothing can happen in your future that can contradict his loving plan for your life, for your entire existence. Lift your eyes. And so maybe you're a college student this morning and you're unsure about the future. Students, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes and see the sovereignty of God over your life and over your entire career. He will direct you. He will be faithful to you. Maybe you are a young family and you are desperately trying to buy a new house. And your phone is overheating even in this moment because you keep hitting the refresh button on Zillow and Realtor.com. You just want to find something. And maybe you're just becoming increasingly fearful that there won't ever be a house that you are able to buy. Friends, lift your eyes and see the sovereignty of God. He is your home. He is your security. And he will provide for your every need. Even as he clothes the lilies of the fields and feeds the birds of the air, he will care for you and your family. Maybe you are a parent who has a child with special needs. And you look into the future, and it's a very fearful thing. You don't know what will happen. You don't know what life will look like for you or for your child in 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Friend, lift your eyes and see the sovereignty of God who cares for you and who cares for your child. Maybe you are a single and you are wondering if you will always be a single. And that is a fearful thing. Friend, lift your eyes and see the sovereignty of God over all things. He loves you. Church, he is with you and he is for you even right now. His good plans for your life cannot be stopped. He can be trusted with every area of your life, past, present, and future. He's the sovereign one. He's Lord over heaven and earth. We can trust him. And that brings us to our third point this morning. Point number three, trusting God's sovereignty. Trusting God's sovereignty. Church, it is one thing to acknowledge God as the sovereign one, but it is an entirely different thing to trust him and to actively live for him. It's one thing to see him for who he is. It's another thing to trust him and to give yourself to him. What does it look like to trust God and his sovereignty over your life? What does it look like to live your life in a way that is submitted to this king of kings? Well, friends, Genesis 24 shows us exactly what it looks like. Genesis 24 actually gives us three wonderful pictures of what it is to live life in God's sovereignty. First of all, look at Abraham. We, we see Abraham acknowledge God's sovereignty by how he leads his servant to swear in this moment. He, he makes his servant swear, we've already noted this, by, by, by the Lord of heaven and earth, citing who God is. But then look at verse 2. He also says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear. What is that about? If I am the servant at this point, I'm saying, really, Abraham, that's slightly intimate, a little bit uncomfortable for me. Can we just pinky swear today? Do we, do we have to do this? But folks, there's significance here. 
Some commentators try to, to say that th- to put your hand under the thigh is only a way to show submission to someone of greater authority. But that, they're trying to get away from the uncomfortable reality. I don't agree with that. Most of the good commentaries don't either. It seems very clear that the thigh is a euphemism for Abraham's private parts. It's his genitals. And so why would Abraham ask his servant to place his hand there? There are other passages in Scripture that say that children come from the thigh of a man. And so it leads us to think that this is what is being spoken of here. Why would Abraham ask his servant to place his hand there? Well, folks, because that is where the sign of God's covenant with Abraham is found, right? Since Genesis 17 and the sign of circumcision, God has marked out Abraham and his offspring to be his people. And so by having the servant swear in this way, Abraham is acknowledging God's sovereign plan and purposes to bring about his offspring and that he is covenanted with him. His plans will be fulfilled. And so, servant, swear by this covenant. This is the greatest identity in my life. But notice, notice how Abraham does not only acknowledge God's sovereignty through these things. No, Abraham also actively obeys. He he tells his servant to go and to find a wife from the land of Ur. The, The Canaanite people, the people who lived where Abraham currently was, the Canaanites were cursed back in Genesis chapter 9. And so Abraham is obedient in this moment to look for a wife from somewhere else. But listen, he's also obedient in that he will not allow Isaac to return to his homeland to find that wife. That would have been an easier solution. But he knows. He knows that God has called him out of that old life, called him out of that old land. And he is now resolved by God's grace that neither he nor Isaac will return to that place. He says repeatedly to the servant, you must not take Isaac back there. Abraham's obeying in this moment. He is devoted to God and to his promise. Folks, this is what it is to trust God's sovereignty. It is to obey him in practical ways with your life. To follow him and to to never go back to where you were before you met him. Folks, we see the same thing, not just with Abraham, but with the servant. He too acknowledges God's sovereignty by swearing. This is a side note, not even in my notes. I love the example of Abraham. His faith in God rubs off on other people. His faith in God, his confidence in Yahweh rubs off on his family. Dads, what what an encouragement to us. As we set our eyes on Jesus and pursue Jesus, others will grow in their faith as well. He too acknowledges God's sovereignty by swearing in this way and then by walking in obedience before God. He takes this long journey. And when he arrives, he he prays to the Lord and he asks for direction from God. He's actively trusting God by actively obeying God. Later on in the story, when Laban tries to delay their return back to Abraham, the servant says, no, no, please let me go. He is resolved to obey to the fullest. And then finally, third picture here, look at Rebekah. Rebecca is a beautiful picture of trust and faith in God. Immediately, she is shown to be a generous and hospitable person. She, she is eager to serve this man that she doesn't even know, which reflects Abraham back in chapter 18, if you remember, when he was generous to those three strangers. And then we see her obey when she is willing to immediately follow the servant back to Isaac. 
Talk about heroic faith in God. She leaves everything in order to marry a man that she had not ever met. Ladies, ladies, listen. I don't know if you are ever tempted to think that the Bible only highlights the, the male examples of faith. Always highlighting the men. That, that's not true. God's word speaks very highly of women. Rebecca and other women throughout scriptures are seen as amazing examples for all of us to follow. In fact, commentators actually speak of Rebecca here as the the female version of Abraham. Carrying out the same faith as Abraham, leaving her home behind, just as Abraham had years before, requiring the same faith. And Abraham is spoken of as a man of extraordinary faith. Rebecca Like all women within the church, she's so central to God's plan and purposes to advance his kingdom and his gospel. And her faith, her trust in God is demonstrated also by her obedience to God. She follows. Folks, this is what trusting in God's sovereignty looks like. We we trust him by actively obeying him with our lives. And so let me just ask the question, how about you? How about you this morning? Are you trusting God and his sovereignty by living for him? Are you obeying him even in the areas of life that are difficult to obey? Are you following his commands which are for your life in this world? This is what it is to to trust God, to, to follow him and to obey and to be conformed to the image of his son. Ian Duguid in his commentary on Genesis 24 said that the truth here is whatever your age may be, all you really need to know about guidance in life can be summed up in this one sentence. God is faithful, so obey him. God is faithful, so we trust him. God is faithful, so we give him our entire lives. God is faithful, so we trust and obey. Now, Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you are in a weak season of your faith. Maybe you don't understand how this sort of obedience is is possible for you. Maybe you look at Rebecca's faith and you don't even have a category for how she can obey in this way. How can she obey God and just leave everything behind and go into a future that is so uncertain? How can Abraham believe so strongly that God's going to provide in this way when he doesn't even know if the servant's going to make it through the desert? Friends, here is how. They all know that God has been faithful in the past and they allow that past confidence to give them confidence for the future. Abraham, if you notice, specifically recalls how God had already worked in his life, how he had already called him out of that homeland. He remembers the promises that God had made and already fulfilled in his life. The the servant knows this too. The servant, when he talks to Laban and Rebekah, he's very quick to talk about how faithful God has been to Abraham since they last saw him many decades before. God had done great things in Abraham's life. This is what gives Rebecca the faith to obey as well. The, the servant does not come and say, hey, Rebecca, would you come back with me to Abraham and to Isaac? By the way, they're, they're barely surviving. God has not been faithful to them in any way. Things have gone terribly. Yeah, come on back. That's not what he does. He doesn't say Abraham has nothing to offer you. He says, no, 
God has done great things in his life. Greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. You see that in verse 35. It is God's past faithfulness, church, which gives them so much confidence to trust God for the future. And church, the same is true for us today, right? Hasn't God been faithful? Look to Jesus Look to the cross. Look to the gospel. God has done an unimaginably good work for you and for me. And so like Abraham, he has made us great. Like Abraham, he has made us great in and through his son, Jesus. And so can't we trust him? Can't we believe that his ways are always best, always true, always good? Can we allow his, his past faithfulness and his past demonstrations of his sovereign power and goodness lead us to believe him for the future as well? Church, God's sovereignty gives hope and comfort when our futures are uncertain. This is the point of Genesis 24. Remember what God has done, and friend, trust him for your future. Remember what he has done and, and worship him with your life. I love how the text says two different times that when the servant saw the Lord answer his prayers, he bowed his head to the ground and he worshiped. We see that in verse 26 and in verse 48. He worshiped the Lord. And so should we, church. There is, there is much uncertainty in our life and in our world. Changes and difficult transitions in life are hard to go through, and there are more of them that are coming our way. They are inevitable. There are going to be countless moments when we don't know what is going to happen. But we can worship the Lord with our lives because we know that he has been faithful, and he will be faithful again. Even as this chapter says at the very end that Isaac was comforted about his mother's death, a very real difficulty, he was comforted by, about her death by the Lord providing Rebekah, so we will find comfort and hope and courage as we consider how God has provided for us. The future is uncertain. Many questions remain, but church, remember that you are loved by the Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all things, and he will not allow the good plan for your life to be stopped. Great is his faithfulness. Trust in him, church. He will never let you go. Trust him. Live for him. Obey him. Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nor anything else in your future will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, trust the Lord. 